0: Welcome to the Breakfast Leadership Show, where we interview global thought leaders on business, leadership, and life. Here's your host, keynote speaker, best selling author, and chief burnout officer of the Breakfast Leadership Network, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I got Todd Churches on the line. Todd, how are you? I am great. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. We're going to talk about leadership, but a different perspective, more of visual nature as kind of a cue to that. So tell us a little bit about you and then we'll dive into your book and the work that you do.
1: Sure. My name is Todd Churches. I'm the CEO of a uh, consulting company called Big Blue Gumball based here in New York City. We do management and leadership training, executive coaching, team building, presentation skills, anything in those soft skills areas. Um, And in addition, I'm an adjunct professor of leadership at NYU and Columbia. I teach leadership in the HR master's program at NYU and in a few different programs at Columbia, including their MFA Theater program, I teach leadership for Broadway stage managers, which is a tough time to be working on Broadway right now with the pandemic and the theaters closed. Um, but you got to keep learning and you kind of got to lay this is a good time to lay the foundation for when things finally start opening up again and work on developing ourselves um, so that we're not wasting the time. In fact, I started writing a blog post called These. Um, it's, it's called These Are One of These Days, because you know how we always have those? One of these days, if I have the time, well, you have the time. You're never going to have more discretionary time than you have right now. Make this the time to work on some of those things. So um, in addition to teaching at NYU in Columbia, I just did my first TEDx talk last year called The Power of Visual Thinking. And then my book, which I've been working on for many years, was just published by Post Hill Press, Simon & Schuster in May. And um, so I've been mainly spending the time spreading the good word about visual leadership.
0: That's amazing work that you do, and uh, your accomplishments are great, and the fact that you were able to find time to write a book, and as an author myself, we, we both know it's not something that you can necessarily do in a weekend. Um, it's lots of weekends and lots of nights, and and of course, in your situation, you said it's taken years, but it makes sense because for a subject that your book covers, it's something that's going to take time to study and analyze the art form of, of leadership and the different perspectives. So, let's dive into that book. So, you know, what drove you? Because obviously, you said it's taken you years to write it. You know, what was the motivating factor in, in writing the book, and what were some of the lessons learned along that journey?
1: Yeah. Well, one is I'm a business book junkie addict, starting in 1998, not to give away my age, but I was working for a management training company, and they hired me to revamp their mini-MBA program, even though I didn't have a degree in business. I was actually an English literature major uh, with a focus on Shakespeare and poetry, so I was just admiring your Shakespeare uh, statue right behind you. So I come from like a literary mindset, and I grew up obsessed with television, and, and my two favorites were Superman and Batman. And I talk about that in my TED Talk, how when p- kid, people would say to me at age five or six, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would say, I want to be Superman. It's like, well, what, if you couldn't be Superman, what would you want to be? Right, then Batman. So it's like, those are my two career aspirations. So it's good to have a backup plan as you think about your career. So my mindset was always shaped by superheroes and TV growing up a child of the 60s and 70s. And then later literature, Shakespeare poetry. Um, so a lot of what I did revolved around storytelling. Right, stories have a beginning, middle, and end. Stories have victims, villains, and heroes. Story, um, stories are people going on a quest and overcoming obstacles. So I always love storytelling. And when I started working in management and leadership, I realized there were parallels there. To um, as a manager or even as a, an individual, you are the lead character in your own story, in your story, in your life story, in your work career story. Right. Um, so. Well, I started studying management leadership books. I started reading one after another after another, and that's one of my claims to fame is that I I averaged one a week from 1998 to 2018. So over those 20 years, I read one a week, which worked out to 50 a year, and over 20 years, that's over 1,000 business books. So, um, and then I started, so then people started saying to me, you've written, you've read all these books, when are you going to write one, right? And as in the course of teaching and doing management leadership training, I would come up with my own models, my own theories, my own approaches. And every time I would write it down, and I finally, last summer, locked myself away in this office for three months. So, I literally had no summer last summer. Didn't have much of a summer this summer either because of the pandemic, but... Um, But like, uh, yeah, the only way to get something done is to really, it's very hard to write while you're working full time. And it's just, I I blocked out those three months and just took all the content I have accumulated. And I always say the hardest thing is to decide what to leave out because I had so much stuff. Um, So it was a challenge. And then not only do you have to decide on your content, but what's the sequence, what makes sense, how does it flow? And um I was at a leadership conference a couple of years ago, and I met an author named Rob Salafia. He wrote the book Leading from Your Best Self, which is the orange book over my shoulder. And I said, how did you get your book published by McGraw-Hill? He said through my agent. He introduced me to his agent, Ken Lazat, who took me on, and he made a deal for me with Post Hill Press, Simon & Schuster. And that's how I got my book published um, and out there into the world.
0: It's an awesome journey uh, to get a book out. And, you know, everyone has, all the authors I've had the fortune to interview, their journeys have been a little bit different as far as how they've got there. But it's always been that I've got all of this information that I want to compile in such a way that I can somehow give the vision that I have and the way I see things to help people that read it kind of channel into their own vision of what they look at. Leadership, or whatever subject people are writing about. So, uh, congratulations on that. And yeah, I know what in writing a book. Yeah, you basically have to give yourself a sabbatical and just kind of you know venture away for a bit and go deep into it because it, it's one of those things. And I'm not a big fan of multitasking anyway. Um, I find it just you, you, you just you're doing little bits of stuff instead of let's do something really good, deep focus on that. So everything you do ends up being better if you do it that way. And, and writing a book is definitely one of those things because like I said you had you know, a couple decades worth of material and you know the, I'm sure the director's cut floor was littered with some amazing content but you're like I, I, I can only you know unless I want to go into a you know Tim Ferris thickness book here, um, I, I'm gonna to need to you know focus on you know the stuff that I feel is crucially important for for the reader to be able to grasp and, and learn from.
1: Yeah. And one of the things, one of the nicest pieces of feedback I get from people as they're reading it um, is that they say, it sounds like you're speaking to me, like you write the way you speak. So I've gotten that from my students, from my clients. And, and that's what I did when I was writing it. I was writing it as if I was talking, as if I was telling the story. So a lot of the content was um, from some previous blog posts I had written. So I had a lot of content, um, but about two thirds of the book was original content that I had never told before or stories I had never written about before, but ones that I wanted to share with other people because there were life lessons in there. Um, And one of the recurring themes in my life has been horrible bosses. So I set the world record for most horrible bosses any person can have in their lifetime. So I'm not sure what the Guinness Book Record is, but I think I'm pretty close. Um, So my book is dedicated first to my wife, secondly to my, my parents, and thirdly to all the horrible bosses I've had without whom my book could never have been written. So the fact that I had so many bad, Bosses is what really drove me into management leadership because um, they were just abusive and bad communicators and dictatorial and, and manipulative. And I said, There's got to be a way- I, I said, I can't see spending my entire career working for people like this. It's like, there's got to be a better way. And what you find is that most people are thrown into management leadership positions. You know, this is the Peter principle you rise to the level of your incompetence or you're good at something, so you, you're made the manager of that thing. Meanwhile, managing and leading other people is a completely different skill set, and most people aren't really trained for that. So some people, if you have had good bosses, you're very lucky because there's a lot of really mediocre, if not really horrible ones out there. So um, my mission in life is to help make the world a better place, one leader at a time. And to me, everyone's a leader in one way or or another. But also, if people can become a better manager, leader, boss from reading my book and practicing some of my principles, then I'm helping them impact all the people who come after them.
0: Yeah, that's actually a good segue to a question I had for you with this pandemic. I have seen uh, that those bad bosses that are out there are a lot more apparent than they were before because of all the micromanaging and the 18,000 Zoom calls and the what are you doing, what are you doing kind of thing. And instead of just letting their people do their job and get out of their way type of thing, and it, it highlights the lack of proper delegation, it highlights the lack of clear direction of what people are supposed to be working on. Because yeah. if you you hire somebody to do a role or perform certain tasks, educate them on what they need to do, utilize their skill set, make sure they have everything they need to do to be successful at their job, and get out of their way. Yeah. But unfortunately, these managers, and you, you brought a great point, they were thrown into it because they were good at something or they, you know, you know, the cream rise to the top and I'm not going to tell you what that cream is, but it looks kind of Brown. Okay. Yeah. And so basically we see, and we've seen, and they've seen that and I've had, you know, several horrible bosses myself and it, it, it frustrates me because I know it doesn't have to be that way. And so, you know, I'm, I'm sure that you're seeing that as well, especially during this pandemic that it's becoming more apparent of how many bad bosses are out there right now.
1: Yeah, you know, the focus of my management and leadership training and my executive coaching right now is managing and leading in a COVID and post-COVID world. Because some things are timeless principles of management and leadership, but in other ways, we need to change and adapt. And like you said, um, there's that MBWA managing by walking around. You can't manage by walking around when people are working working from home, right? So it's like, how do you? So managers need to. I always talk about, you know. You mentioned a few of the words: delegation, empowerment, ownership, and accountability. Those four words, right? You need to delegate to people. Be clear on results. Like it's not; a, it shouldn't matter when they get their work done. They may have their dogs on their keyboard, their kids jumping on them while they're homeschooling them. This is a different world right now, so you need to cut people some slack. Um, allow them to achieve some work-life uh, balance or integration. Because so it shouldn't matter if people do their work at noon or at midnight, right? It's if they meet, if they get the results, but too many managers are like you say, micromanaging. Like I expect my people to be on zoom from nine to five every day to make sure that they're working. You know, that's, I I know you're a burnout specialist. That's how you burn people out. You, they, you get, they fry. They just, uh, it's not productive. It's mentally, emotionally, psychologically, physically, um, painful to go through that so we need to find a way to be less of a manager more of a leader and to empower people to you know get their work done give them I always talk about R&R resources and roadblocks you need to give people the resources they need and remove the roadblocks that stand in their way but very often the manager is the roadblock right they stand in the way of people being their best selves and getting the most done and the best done so um A lot of times, managers, they blame their people, but they should really be looking in the mirror, flipping the eye, one of my phrases, and looking at themselves and questioning, is the way I'm managing and leading people effective? And if not, what do I need to change?
0: It's definitely an opportunity for leadership and management to take a deep look at themselves and go, all right, what am I doing to help this business grow? Or what am I doing to make this business, quite frankly, in trouble? Uh, in, a, in a lot of organizations right now are in trouble because just they're not managing their internal resources. They're burning their teams out, which means those people are going to go on medical leave or sick leave. And, and talking with people in the insurance industry, the mental health claims are skyrocketing. Mm-hmm. So a lot of businesses are just like, well, you know, we don't have to worry about it. it because they don't see it impact the bottom line. When it comes to insurance renewal time next year, any businesses that are watching this, your premiums are going to go up. I guarantee it. And why? Because so many people are stressing out their employees and they're going to go out, they're going to leave. And we all know the stats. It takes a long time to replace somebody, especially a key employee. You know, The, the knowledge lost with people that have been with your organization for a long time is very difficult, if not impossible to replace. Mm-hmm. So treat your employees well. Make sure that they, you know, the R&R, like you said, is a great analogy. Make sure that's taken care of. Let them work in their sweet spot. Give them the autonomy to be able to do their job to the best of their ability when it makes sense, especially right now during COVID because so many people became full-time school teachers as well. Get all of those things sorted out. You're actually going to get better production from an employee because they have the control. Give them back the control to do their job. and. And another thing that I, I see this all the time, and I hear businesses will say, "Well, we're doing this and this and this," and I ask them, "Okay, well, what are your customers saying about this?" Well, we're not getting a lot of feedback from, and I'm like, "Wait a minute, you're not talking to your customers yeah. right now. You need to find out what do your your customers need from you right now, not next year or two years from now. What do they need from you right now? Because there's something that potentially could make that business or that client of yours." Make or break their industry or their company if you could do something to help them. And I think that's ultimately what we all have to do right now is what can we do collectively to help each other, other organizations to be able to do the things that they need to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the pain points and how can I help you relieve the pain? And one of the things you mentioned, you know, R&R resources and roadblocks is also been to trigger rest and relaxation, right? Are am I also doing that for my people? So if you give them the resources and remove the roadblocks, they will have some more time to get some rest, to get some relaxation, even in their workday. Just those mental um, breaks that we all need to recharge and refresh, which is two other R's, right? So um, it's, it's, and again, managers can even, and I always talk about managers try to get the most out of their people. Leaders try to get the best out of them, right? Getting the most is about bringing people dry to the point where they burn out and then there's nothing left to give. When you try to get the best out of someone, um, and I love the analogy, don't light a fire under people, light a fire within them, right? Two Ps, purpose and passion. If you create a sense of purpose in the work that you're doing and instill that passion in people and you exhibit that passion yourself as a leader, that fire is going to be ignited in the person, right? And they're going to be self-motivated. Jim Collins in Good to Great said, don't discipline people, hire self-disciplined people, people who are self-motivated. And if people are like that, you never have to manage them. All you have to do is lead them and, and let them spread their wings and fly. So it's, again, a different type of leadership philosophy. And a big part of it is letting go. Um, and the, the, fa- the I was just talking about this in my NYU class the other night. We were talking about empowerment. To empower people, and the root word of empowerment is power, you need to voluntarily be willing to give up some of your own power in order to empower someone else. But that, in, that, that involves trust. That involves accountability. That in, involves giving clear direction. Roles and responsibilities, helping people prioritize. Because again, people, we're trying to eliminate stress. Cause when people are under stress, they're not performing at their best selves, right? You're not making the best decisions. Your brain isn't even functioning properly. So our jobs as leaders is to try to remove a, as much of that stress as possible. And for a lot of people, their boss is their single biggest source of stress.
0: We've seen the, you know, the phrase people don't quit their jobs, they quit their bosses. Yeah. And we see that time and time again. I think back to all the organizations that I worked for and left. Did I leave because of the company or did I leave because of my boss? And I'd say the majority of it was because of my boss or bosses. One, a couple of them were relocation kind of situations to move to a different area. But for the most part, it was always, you know, just a disconnect Uh, and, 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 and I wish everybody well you know I don't wish harm on anybody but when i hear from you know people i used to work with at organizations you know nothing's changed and they've gone through a rotation of people after i left And like, okay, they're on how many since I left? And I do the math. I'm like, "Mm, that's a little bit more frequent than we tend to see executives turn over. What in the world's going on? But I already know the answer to that question. That's why I left. So it's, it's unfortunate. It doesn't have to be that way. And especially now with this pandemic and what's going on in the world, those organizations that can empower their employees and allow people to work in their sweet spot and do their best roles are the ones that are going to be more successful and likely be able to withstand however long this pandemic goes than those organizations just like, nope, it's got to be this way, this way, or this way. It's it, it, You just see it. You know it's going to happen that way.
1: Yeah, one of the most powerful uh, and popular... Um visual models in my book is called my passion skill matrix. In fact, I do workshops just on this one model. I just did one a couple of weeks ago for um, 2,500 people globally, a uh, 45-minute workshop on it. And the passion skill matrix, if you, I'm going to explain this visually without showing the pictures, picture, it's a picture of four box matrix in the upper right, basically the two dimensions or the two axes are um, passion from I hate it to I love it. And across the bottom is skill from I'm terrible at it to I'm great at it. If you're in the upper right quadrant doing things that you love and that you're great at, that's your sweet spot. That's where you've that's where you're in the zone, you're in a state of flow. You're I always ask people, what do you want to be known as the go-to person for or the guru of? What's your specialty? Right? That's when you live in that box, you're happy and you're 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 productive. The upper left is your growth zone. You like it, you have an interest in it, but you're not great at it yet. And the word yet adds that dimension of possibility. Um The lower right quadrant is default zone where you're doing things that you don't love, but you're good at it. So you just go through the motions or you're on autopilot. And the lower left is your your failure zone where you don't like it, you're not good at it, and you're just miserable. So if you're spending a lot of your life and your time below the line in the default and failure zones, you're just by definition not going to be happy with going to work every day. And if you're above the line where you're doing things in your sweet spot in your growth zone, that's where you feel fulfilled and engaged and motivated, right? So, but there are ways of getting out of those boxes. Once you recognize some people are miserable in their jobs, but they can't put their finger on why, when they have them plot, what are some of the things that you do and how much time are you spending in each of those four quadrants, the light bulb goes off. And it's like, that explains it, right? That's, that is why I'm not that happy. And then the conversation, the coaching becomes, all right, how can you get out of the failure zone? Can you learn to like it? Can you, are you, do you not like it? Cause you're not good at it. And if you were better at it, would you like it a little more or at least hate it a little less? So, and then if you can inch that failure zone stuff up into the growth zone, eventually you can can become a sweet spot, but also a sweet spot, if you get bored with something and don't keep learning and growing, can drop into the default zone. And then you go on autopilot and you find yourself in the failure zone, right? So it's this fluid model, but this out of all the tools that I use, this one is, um, and I did this for a team building exercise where I had 24 people do this. We put them all up on the wall and the company created a master team passion skill matrix. Each person had a different color marker. And it was great because People would say, oh, I didn't know you liked that. I didn't know you hated that. I didn't know I th- you thought you're bad at that. I thought you're great at that. So it created this amazing conversation. And what they did is they redefined everyone's roles and responsibilities. So if you have something in a default zone, but someone has it in their growth zone, maybe if you mentor them and hand off your work to them, they'll learn and grow and you'll free up your time to work on some of the things you want to. So that's just one model. And it really reduced and increased engagement, reduced stress. It was just such a great exercise.
0: I love that, and it, it, it's it's a great team-building exercise, and it, it it sheds some light on understanding how coworkers and bosses and employees can better work with each other because a lot of times we go into this with preconceived notions of what this person is like and what they're not like, and it reminds me of a, a team-building exercise I did many years ago for an organization, and my boss and I, if, if you just met this and we talked to each other, you wouldn't think that we were like We, we approached things differently. Mm-hmm. But we went through, it was the, I think it was the True Colors, one of those exercises. Mm-hmm. And they had a facilitator, and we did it, and we turned in the results. And both Cheryl and I had the same color. And it took 45 minutes to calm her down because she was so upset saying, there is no way he is the same as I am. Yeah. And she wasn't being rude to me. She's like, there's no way. So the facilitator had to actually excuse everybody from the class mm-hmm. except her and me. And he asked some deeper questions. And we both, you know, said, you know, similar answers. And she's like, okay, I see it. I still don't believe it, but I see it. Okay. And and she again, she wasn't mad at me or upset. And I, I think the world was Cheryl, but um, it, it was just one of those things where I'm I'm laughing. The rest of the team were just roaring with laughter going, wow. But they were thinking she was really mad and was going to throw the guy out and it was going to be a disaster, but that wasn't the case. She just could not see it because the way I presented and the way that I engage with people wasn't necessarily in alignment with the way that she approaches people and things like that, but the result ended up being the same. So uh, I love those exercises because it brings more awareness to everybody and it it opens up the communication lines and they go, okay, that's why this person moves this way or behaves this way or thinks this way. And it it, it clears some of those silos that we tend to find in so many businesses.
1: That's what I was going to say. The purpose is not to put you in a box. The purpose is to gain that self awareness like you're talking about. And the purpose is for this model, this tool or whatever to become a catalyst for conversations that you might not otherwise have had. Right? So the fact that you had this conversation with Cheryl, I'm, I'm sure like connected you and you found commonalities and you got to laugh a little bit about it. So it's like, that's the purpose of it. So a lot of times with a lot of these things, it's the process not necessarily the outcome that is most beneficial. It's going through the process together where you're both learning and gl- growing and exploring and having these conversations. So that's the power of a model. So in my book, I talk about visual leadership working in four categories using visual imagery, mental models, metaphors, and storytelling. Those are my four categories. So you, any of these tools are mental models by which we could frame things. So there's that, you know. Thinking outside the box has become a cliche, but the reality is we can't think outside the box until we have something inside the box. So one of my mantras is um, thinking inside the box. So the world and life are messy and complex. If we can find a framework in which to put things so we can see them more clearly, we can then take them out of the boxes or put them in different boxes or whatever. So in the analogy, the metaphor I use is Let's say you were setting a table uh, of silverware and you needed eight place settings, if you opened up the kitchen drawer, the silverware drawer, and all the silverware was just thrown in there, how long would it take you to find eight place settings, right? You open up the next drawer and everything is in its compartments, knives, forks, spoons, different sizes, right? You can easily pull out those eight settings, right? So, life is like that messy silverware drawer when you have mental models and frameworks It's like the neat one, you have compartmentalization, and then you can see solutions quicker and more effectively and more efficiently than when it's messy. So that's part of our job. And think about how less stressful life is when we can put things in mental boxes and categorize things so we feel a little bit more control. Because right now, where everyone's talking about the phrase VUCA, we're living in a VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous – I wrote a blog post recently called The Leader's Job is to do the opposite of VUCA. Um, And the opposite is calm, certain, simple, and clear, right? So if if the world is volatile, how can you calm things down? If things are uncertain, how can you help people find some certainty? If things are complex, how can you simplify? If things are ambiguous, how can you clarify, right? So if you're doing those things as a leader, you can help people find some calm in the storm. And again, there's a lot of unknowns, like, with the pandemic, we don't know what's going to happen a month from now, three months, six months. So it's very hard for us to prepare and to plan. But if we can accept that reality, then we can be more flexible and more agile as we go along, as uh, you know, things twist and turn because again, there's so many unknowns out there right now.
0: You know, for all the unknowns, uh, what's crucial is having strong leaders like yourself uh, showing other leaders how to navigate and provide some clarity and, and calmness in, in these storms that we're facing. So Todd, I've loved our conversation today. I could talk to you for hours on this. So where can people find out more about you and this incredible work you're doing?
1: Sure. Thank you so much, Michael. It was a pleasure talking to you. So the, the main way is link in with me. I live on LinkedIn. I'm there all the time. So connect with me, follow me. And uh, I post regularly and I'm always curating information and and ideas relative to visual thinking and visual leadership secondly my new website just launched a few weeks ago so toddchurches.com and if you go to toddchurches.com slash subscribe you can download my list of my top 52 visual leadership resources and then for my book uh, visual leadership it's on amazon and uh and wherever books are sold so
0: That's awesome. So I'll definitely have that information in the show notes. So again, Todd, thank you so much for the work you do. So making the world a better place. And
1: thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you, Michael.
0: Thanks for listening to the Breakfast Leadership Show, part of the Breakfast Leadership Network. Visit breakfastleadership.com for tips on empowering your business and your life.